Welcome to the LSI Behind the Wind podcast. My name is Sean Slatter, and for 30 years, I've dedicated my life to the science of business development. I've seen the impact of our work, which has evolved into economic development and now social impact. In this episode, I'm so excited to have my longtime friend Chuck Coonrad back for round three of gamification. In this episode, we, we discuss a focus of the game of work and gamification on business development. We, If you have not listened to the previous two episodes, please do so. We've talked a, a lot about gamification, the game of work, and our relationship over the last 30 plus years with Chuck and his theories. In this episode, Chuck and I talk about how the game of work, it's scorekeeping and gamification is applied to business development. We talk a lot about organizations, large and small, using the scorecard and scorekeeping, the theory of gamification and looking to align the entire organization to a single objective and ensuring that leaders are working with members of the team to provide constant feedback and also recognition of what is going right. I also talked to Chuck about a new project. We're working together and collaborating on especially a lot of our Fortune 500 clients and some new a new angle in which we are working with government entities in a business development role in what we call command centers. And I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. And as we go through this discussion, keep that in mind on how you could implement gamification and the process of scorekeeping into your business development organization. Let's talk about this, utilizing the game of work for business development. And you've talked with a lot of business development organizations over the years. Where do you start typically? A new deal may not occur every day, but it could. So in in that scenario, we can take a pretty standard sales funnel approach of contact, prospect, call for appointment, made the appointment. Uh, you know, we can take that fairly well and simplify it into what those ratios are between steps. So there was kind of a home-based life insurance company in this state that for years and years and years prospered, got into a little investment trouble but by and large the the insurance deal is son if you'll come in here and make 50 phone calls a day odds are if you don't starve in the first three years that eight or nine or ten years down the road you'll have a six-digit perpetual income and it and it was that broad and it was that general and it was that work hard and hope Kind of a mindset. So if we, and that frustrated an awful lot of people, and that whole industry just burns through people because there's 
in my view, there's too much gap between the effort and the intermediate win. Okay. So once we define the deal as to either being home security, pest control, daily opportunity, to I'm going to call it a chunk sale. And by that, identify a realtor, for example. So even in the craziest of markets, most people in that industry don't expect us to close a deal every day. Okay. If we look at the history of the game of work as an entity, we did very nicely if one of our people would close a deal every 10 working days. Okay. At LSI, that time frame is probably stretched even further than that to, I don't know, 180 days. Some, when you're doing mega deals, sometimes if you get one a year, you're okay. You know, if you're in the M&A business. But one of the things that came out of that experience for our people was a concept called MDBS, mean days between sales. And I spent a little time in in the purchasing side of the business, very short, lucky, escaped. But there is a, in fact, you'd be better attuned to this than I would, but there's a mean time to failure that weapon systems are subject to. And so it's, you know, for lack of a better word, it's it's how many rounds you can put through a Thompson submachine gun before the barrel melts. And I remember that, that conversation, that methodology from the purchasing side. And I was going for some certificates in that area. So we were doing that. So I get in this business and I realized that, that the sales cycle People are not going to go from doing a deal a month to doing two deals a month because you're asking them for 100% improvement at at the very most fragile state of their career and their capability, right? So we developed this idea, and I think this would be very applicable for the LSI world. And so when we brought somebody on board, we said, these are the sales goals. They're all ready to write. And the first sales goal, if you're working at the game of work or you're working in a chunk seller environment, is to go get your first deal. What do you mean, Chuck? Okay. Let me go slow and enunciate more. It is to go get your first sale. Because I don't care if you just walked onto the floor at your at your local Toyota store or or you're down selling Mercedes Benz or Lamborghinis, your career is going nowhere without this entry point. Right. Right. You know, and, and, and you get some hotshot you're hiring from a similar industry and it's going, yeah, but I want to, you know, I want to set the world on fire and da, 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 da. So what are my sales goals? Watch my lips. Get your first sale. Okay. Now, the second step, and again, the, the I get a lot of criticism for simplicity, but you know, I'm just a football player, so what do I know? 
But the second goal, and we're only going to work on goal one until we achieve it. Okay. We're not going down buying boats and hitches and Cadillacs and stuff like that. We're just going to focus on the first deal. And depending on the strength of the organization, the nature of the business, et cetera, we may have a financing package, a draw against commissions, doing something of that nature in the first step. But right now, we're just working on sale one. And once we get that done, we're going to work on sale two. And our next goal is to get the second sale in less time than it took you to get the first. So if you come into a real estate office, you come into uh, a professional contract services, you are a managing partner for KPMG, same set of rules apply. So, and I, I have a scorecard that unfortunately I don't have all the underlying data for, but I may now be forced to step up and put my large, my large boy pants on and get that recreated. But we do have an example of one of the most successful people that we've ever had in the game of work. And his first sale took him, we'll tidy this up, but directionally took him 50 or 60 days, working days. You're talking two and a half months now. He had a financing deal and we were willing to finance as long as we had the activity. We'll talk about activity as follow-up. So he gets the first one in 50 days. Gets the second one in like 38. Now recognize that he's filling the pipeline for deal two while we're finalizing and working towards the sale. So so we don't we don't stop the preliminary activity just because the goal is to get the first deal. Okay. So now take 50 and 40. So he's he's averaging a deal every 35, 45 days. Okay. So now his goal, goal three, the third sale in less time than the average of the first two. Again, you'll notice not a lot of software required for this step. Okay. This is nothing that Watson is going to take on as a secondary product line. Exactly. And the fourth one, the fourth goal is to continue to beat your average. So we just had the former director of business development for Lockheed Martin. Mm. And I had worked with this individual for a lot of years and had learned a lot from him. And I think we taught him a lot as well. And he talked about bringing together an organization like Lockheed Martin and ensuring that the team understood what the objective is, what are we going to achieve this year? And then training the team on their roles and responsibilities within the organization. There were hundreds of Lockheed business development executives working against this goal. When you're a part of the team, what are some of the key metrics that you would have an organization like Lockheed Martin focused on tied to business development? Okay. So now we've sort of defined the size of the deal. And and again, you know, if you're if you're selling a luxury car. You sell one of those a month, happy days. 
you know, really. And if you sell two or three, I mean, if you're selling a a hundred or $150,000 automobile with the gross margin that's in the transaction and your commissional part of that, you live pretty well on two or three, maybe even four transactions a month. Calculate it out, we know which pay. If you're selling Toyotas on the low end and you're selling a $27,000 vehicle instead of a $127,000 vehicle, the frequency has to do better. So inherent in every sales planning function must be two things that don't come up very often. One is frequency and the other one is size. So you know the people at SNK Technologies in Montana. Very well. Nice, great people. Great people. Great people. Now their size, if you talk about negotiating a service contract for the and I, I don't think I'm telling stories out of school because all this is public, but if you're talking about them getting a contract to do all of the maintenance work on the F-16s for the United Arab Emirates, it's a big chunk of business. Okay. Unlike pest control, typically not closable in the day. So you have to break that sales. And instead of having the sales dollars per year, my preference is, is to say our average transaction size that we're going to go out and sell is X. And if you're talking about Lockheed, Boeing, some of those other people that we, we both know and, and understand, you're saying what I'm really going to do this year is I'm going to go initiate X number of contracts that are going to get me there. And if I simply start talking about annual dollars, chances are I won't win. And goes back to the car analogy. So no matter what the Lockheed Martin budget is, it's made up of transaction size and number of deals. Yep. So that becomes the next. And, and I guess, Sean, if we were going to title this part of, of a book, it's what happens just before. And it blends in with Covey's begin with the end in mind. So I'm going to go get 12 $50 million deals. I mean, let, let's get scaling here. So, so Lockheed, here, here's the real numbers. Lockheed's revenue is about $65 billion annually. They want to grow to $70 billion. You're building a scorecard for the team around this objective of making that number, that $70 billion threshold. That That is the next benchmark that they're trying to achieve. Okay. Yep. We've got it. So one of the things, and you'll just need to correct me on the details, but I would presume that some of that 70 billion is going to be renewal. It is. Or it might even be repeat without having to renew. A lot of that revenue is existing. What we call keep it, keep sold, keep that revenue sold. Yep. Hug them, hold them, endure. Your, not, but that's it. it. It's maintenance. So 
So the next breakdown is to segment the 70 billion, because I think what just pops into any logical mind is to say, okay, we've done this at this base for this period of time. We're halfway through uh, a 30 aircraft build and some portion of the 30 aircraft over six years is going to fall into 2022. And so that's the next part is that I have to portion out the types of business that I'm going to go get. Okay. Because that maintaining that keep it sold category is a much different kettle of fish than what's new, right? Absolutely. So we segment that out, and then we go back to this discipline phrase of what happens just before. So an example would be, if I'm going to stay in the keep it sold phase, what has to happen in this 12-month period of time for me to either gain a signature, which is probable, and a PO, and, you know, all the details. But I got to find out, <laughs> sounds crazy simple, but when is a deal a deal? <laughs> That's right. Right? And and sometimes we miss this because we, in terms of what comes next, is that what comes next, and I never sold airplanes, so I don't know the deal, but... If I've got, if somebody has a build schedule for X number of airplanes over, say, five or six years, and we're in year three, which means at some point in time, we're going to build eight aircraft in the year three of the deal. How do we keep that sold? What is What, in fact, is the recognizable thing that has to happen to keep it sold? Now, you know, if you're selling, you know, we sold our home this year. If you're selling the home, you know, there's a lot of anxiety and trepidation and blah, 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 all that stuff going on. But there's that part where the bank calls and says, yes, Mr. Coonrod, that wire transfer arrived and that money is yours. Ka-ching. That's <laughs> okay. right. So that's part of, again, breaking that down and identifying what is the ka-ching for aircraft 10 through 29 in year three. Okay. So if I identify the Kaching, then what has to happen just ahead of the Kaching? Well, there's in the keep it sold. This is always, this is fun to watch and it's crap to participate in. <laughs> and what I mean by that comes to the same place because <laughs> where it's fun to watch is you, you're saying, okay, this individual has to bring together general so-and-so, his aide, somebody in the contracting area, somebody who's going to flight certify, you know, and that's why it's fun to watch because this is just, you know, it's crazily complex. But if that's what has to happen just before the ka then that's what I need to identify. So what, what is going to be required of me to keep sold the number of aircraft in the existing contract for this particular period, and then you got all that stuff about fiscal years and governmental deals and all that, just to keep it, just to keep it interesting. But I need to back up 
before I can count that hundred millions in that deal. I need to back up and clearly identify what the ka-ching is. And if that ka-ching is a meeting, and I don't mean to get too far down in the wood weeds, but I think we have to understand all of these. If that ka-ching is a meeting, and these are the people that come together, what happens just before that meeting? Oh, well, before that meeting, there's a set of sub-meetings with, and fill in the blanks when I, I don't follow along, with the contracting guy. There's another operational excellence team group that's got to come together. And so by identifying the Kaching and realizing that the meeting of the heads of all of these functions is the just happens before, now I can go down. I can, I can literally build my entire year's sales function resource allocation by continuing to practice this what happens just before. So we talk a lot about in our guidance with our clients, we talk a lot about the target. So in this case uh, uh, with Lockheed, it's a $70 billion target. What needs to be in the pipeline to hit that target? And uh, typically it's some multiple of the target. So if it's if the, the target's 70 billion and we've got we've got to hit uh, you know 10 billion dollars of new revenue, that's maybe 30 billion dollars in the opportunity pipeline of new revenue for us to, to hit that target for Lockheed. We also track the win rate, which is critical because once you know the win rate, then you can calculate the the target. And our objective always is increase your win rate and focus on increasing your win rate and reducing your business development costs. Those are some of the key metrics in that trying to simplify this. Those are some of the key metrics Chuck, that we we work with whether you're a, a small, whether you're an SNK who's a, a client, sure. active client, or whether you're a Lockheed Martin, you're saying let you know now we can we can start tracking and scorekeeping even down to the deal. Yes. Now let me. I will first disclose my bias. I am professionally jealous of. But in terms of their approach, unimpressed by Salesforce. <laughs> okay, and, we'll explain. <laughs> well, and, and all I'm saying by professionally jealous is that, you know, you and I have chatted several times over the years. And, and by professionally jealous, I only found one guy to write me the check for the game of work. That check, to no one's surprise, is substantially smaller than the check the Salesforce guys got. Okay. However, and they get by with it because it's it's part of the American myth. Okay, there are there are several things in the American myth that we all accept. Here's one of them. Due respect to all the Tesla drivers in the world, one of the great hidden facts in our society is how much coal do you have to burn to produce enough energy to drive the Tesla for a year? 
And the best information I can get is it's about the same as driving a 450 diesel. <laughs> which you never have to plug in. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So the thing that I would like to destroy or dissuade you from that's in that Salesforce thing is the probability of close. Now, see, their deal like the coal is that the probability of close equates directly to the win rate. Now, the difference is, and we all went to reasonably good schools, and one of the things we learned in math is that if you multiply anything times zero, you get zero. zero. Okay. So in sitting down, and if you do it in a group meeting, it's even worse. And the larger the number of people you have in the percentage to win group meeting swag on the wall. Okay. It, it, and we see this all the time that it's uh yeah, well, our our probability of win on this opportunity is thirty uh, percent. I said, okay. Well, then, why are you focused on it? Yeah. So let's game of work it down. Okay. Win rate is excellent. Okay. Because win rate is just like at bats, right? I mean, I've got got to track it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely the best and every sales group needs to have it for their basis because it's what happens just before. Okay. So I need the win rate now, but what we need to get to is to say how many opportunities and, and this is semantically close and we can go into all kinds, but the reality is how many opportunities do I need to win? That's right. Right. So if my your opportunity pipeline, how many opportunities need to be in the pipeline for you to hit the target? Yeah. And then we get definitional a little bit around, you know, what does it take? Decision maker needs to be in a room, blah, 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 blah. But if I look at what I've closed in the past, and let's just take an industry segment, you know, because they're a little different. What I've closed in the past, what my win rate is in the past, is this number. Well, what that tells me is that I need to have X number of opportunities that look like what we've been closing. Okay. And so I prefer, and I think everybody gets a better head if they look at the opportunity count. So our next number, Sean, that happens right before the close is how many of those closing opportunities got the right person, got the right budget, got the right parallel, understand the specs, da, 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 da. how many of those, and I don't know this is a phrase, but we used to say, here's the definition. There's no reason this deal can't close that we know. Okay. We have need, we have budget, we have spec, we have. So if I get everybody in the room, there's no reason this deal won't close. Car example again. Okay. Years ago, if you wanted to demo a car, especially upper end, like you drive, you don't have to 
<laughs> but you know, if if you wanted to upper end a demo on a Porsche 911, you almost couldn't do it because you had to decide whether your wife was going to sit side saddle in the back or the salesperson was going to sit side saddle in the back because that's the only way you could get all the bodies in the room. Right, exactly. Okay? Now, so the dealer, I mean, the auto dealers kind of pulled their head out from where the sun doesn't shine and said, what happens just before people buy a car is they demo it. Whoa, whoa, magic. So now you go in and they take a copy of your driver's license and they throw you the keys and nobody watches you. Okay, policeman doesn't come with you, et cetera. Now they might, you might invite one depending on, but fundamentally, you're going to give them a copy of your driver's license. They're going to throw you the keys. Why? Because they figured out that what happens just before is that demo drive. And if you make it so that your significant other can't be in the car for the demo drive, you are screwing up your stats. Okay. So we would use the criteria and we actually call them an ask to buy. This is a meeting where I've got everything in line. And the whole purpose of me being here is I'm going to ask you to buy the deal. Okay. So that was our definition of it. But our scorecard was at the end of today, if I look forward in the next 10 working days, and I'm now, this is a little shorter sequence of than what we've been talking about in terms of the 10 billion for Lockheed. But if I'm doing a conventional wholesale, I'm out there looking for a customer and a client, I'm going to take a 10 day next 10 day window working days. How many opportunities do I have for an ask to buy? Because then I can legitimately implement my win rate. So I'm not percentages of percentages. I'm coming in here and saying, fundamentally, and this is what I would say to our guys, and we, like you, there's kind of two pieces of the business when you're a chunk seller. One is the add-on stuff, you know, where somebody calls and says, you did just such a fabulous job for us with the maintenance team at Name the Air Force Base. And I'm not talking in terms of us. And so we've got, we've had some transfers. We've had some moves. We have some splits. We have another 50 people up here. What does it cost? When can you start? Now, unfortunately, <laughs> there's not as much of that business as we'd all like to have, but it is there. And then on the other end of that effort scale, it's out there scratching, scraping, digging through all the pizzazz and the BS that goes on in the organization to get the right guys and right gals in the organization. So let's go back to that. I'm saying we've now got a business development associate or a team member who's sorting through that, working through that, getting very detailed in that. And then they're going to bring in the surgeon. Said, I always equated myself to a surgeon. People say, well, what kind of a surgeon can you be without going to med school? I said, I have only one technique. It's a wallet And 
I'm able to sit across the table and reach inside a three or $4,000 suit and extract the wallet without the client being terribly uncomfortable about my transaction. That's what I do. So whether you call it the, uh, the orthopedic surgeon taking advantage of a, of a case that's, that's clearly in place and those cases are in front of them or in place else. But now I'm saying in this reasonable period of time, how many of those opportunities have you and the team put together for the surgeon? And I knew based on the amount of volume that we wanted to drive, and I'm talking now new volume, based on the amount of new volume we wanted to drive, I knew that if that number, not in percentages, but in raw numbers was sufficient that I could apply my win rate to it, no problem. You're going to hit your target. Yeah. Yeah. And then how how are you working with these organizations to roll this up to the entire objective, Chuck? I mean, so you, you've got these individual contributors. How are you giving the tools, the, the methodology to the con- individual contributors that then roll up to the corporation, to the organization? And how how is that reporting? What does that look like? Well, first off, it looks like everybody on that team, and I'm going to say regardless of the timing and the deal size. I mean, the, how many opportunities do you have in X number of weeks, days, months, or minutes Okay, do we need in order to make this work? So I could be with Lockheed and... Uh, Maybe that transaction is we need to get that $10 billion in the size that it typically comes in. <laughs> you know, they come in packages. I now know the size of the, of the package I'm selling or the bundle, and I know the frequency that I need it. Now, I've got however many people your uh, friend was describing. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to make sure everybody on that team, if they're responsible for either setting that ask to buy up for themselves or somebody else, we've defined it. We know how many closes we need in whatever period of time we're fighting for. And I know what my win rate is. So my then what happens just before is how many of those do I have in place on every Friday afternoon. And are you typically suggesting to organizations that they're reporting every week, every day? When you're working with these economic development, I mean, business development organizations, what is the frequency of reporting? Well, here's what we found out. Just, I wouldn't call it research because it's just like, happens, you know, and you kind of go, I mean, I don't know that you can slap your forehead and call it research. I just, I'm not, you know, I have a certain moral standard and I just can't get, I can't quite get those to work together. But here's what we know. If you increase the frequency of feedback, i.e. reporting, i.e. scorecards, if you increase the frequency, you increase the quantity and the quality 
of the results. Now, I don't know why. It's like the aspirin of feedback. But if you increase the frequency, if you go, give me a quick example. San Jose Hospital, you have to have a certain number of nurses assigned to the patient bed. That ratio has to be there. If you don't have it, you have to keep last shift's nurses on. You have to bring nurses, Kelly staffing service purposes in. But every time you do one of those, it changes your nursing hour per rate dramatically. Okay, so you might be at 60 bucks an hour for conventional input. You might be at $90 if you keep somebody overtime. You might be at 120 to 150 if you have to call somebody in. Okay, so <laughs> we get there and we're doing our initial, what do you want to get out of this? How's the payoff? payback going to be calculated? And they said, we just got to cut nurses. I said, well, what does the California, <laughs> what's the California Department of Health say about that as a solution? Oh, they're not happy. No, I know they're not. So the real challenge here is we got to figure out how to get the right nurses at the right rate at the right. Okay, got it. So tell me about your measurement. Well, we do payroll every two weeks. Every two weeks, we're over budget. We bring all of the supervisors and schedulers in. We rip them a new one, and we send them back out. Okay, I got that. I don't know that all of those words would go into a Harvest business case, but I'm sure there's one around that. Okay, so I said every two weeks. Yeah, I said so. Increase the frequency of the feedback, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to teach this story. So they look at me with that you know, bad prune plum whip face on her. Going, I suppose you want to measure it daily, don't you, Chuck? I said, no, that's not going to help. We need to measure it every shift. Well, this is now apoplexy across the entire executive group. <laughs> so that's going to be nuts. I go, it's going to take five minutes as the shift operator, the su supervising shift person at the end of the chart. Here's the chart. I don't even care if we do it on on the back of patient envelopes. I, you know, here's what we're gonna do. We'll start with a tally sheet. Whoa, whoa don't we need a software? No, this is the tally sheet. So <laughs> they do this for two weeks. They think I'm dumber than rocks, of course. But as we're gathering this information at the director of nursing, she's beginning to sort and sift through it. And she finds out a couple of things that of course everybody knew, but nobody did anything about it. Number one, our biggest problem was around holidays and weekends. Okay. And you can't make this stuff up. That's what, that's what makes it so fun. And then we were up against a couple of other situations. Anyway, they identified out of the three shifts that, and forgive me in the details, we have to dig it out, but you get the principle. They got around to the fact that one of the three shifts of a three shift day consistently generated 60 or 70 percent of the overtime. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, I think we would call this a target. <laughs> That's it. An investigative opportunity. So we start digging back in through that, and they bring this thing down to what they're going to ask these supervisors to do on a shift. Because now we're only dealing with 
three overtime schedules or two very expensive augmented or whatever, get down to it. And the supervisors, instead of get, well, that was one thing. The other thing we found is that in some number of the 72 shifts a week, so right, no, seven, 21 shifts a week, a large portion of those shifts had no problems at all. So you can imagine how those supervisors felt being called into the meeting to get ripped on for a problem they have nothing to do with. Right. Good morale, really good morale. So we go back and start to recognize the people who are doing the right stuff. Okay. Then we, then we get crazy. Then they pair up a supervisor who's running a shift without a problem with a supervisor who's running a shift with lots of problems. And they just, they just partner. We, you know, we don't rip up the org chart. We don't, we just go, Charlie, you're having some issues in your deal. Sally seems to have figured out the system. Would you all have lunch? We'll buy again. <laughs> so when Sally starts helping Charlie, and Charlie's starting to look at which days and which shifts that he's having an issue with. Well, in short, what happens, Sean, is when you increase the frequency of that feedback, you get down to something that people say, I can fix. So here's the other principle about increasing feedback. If you increase the frequency of a scorecard, numerically, you decrease the size of the problem. So we went from, and I didn't give you this, I think we went from like a million dollars of pay period of overtime, of, of above base wage costs. Might not have been that, but it was a big number. So when you do that, instead of having my part of a million dollars over two weeks on the days I work, I got this thing that says Thursday graveyard, seven premium hours. Well, now all of a sudden, Charlie goes, I can fix that. I thought you wanted this whole thing. No, no, Charlie, (laughs) Thursday graveyard. Can you fix it? Well, you know how, you know what the outcome of the story is. I mean, it doesn't take them four payroll cycles, maybe two months. And that number comes in half. And in another two months, we'll get it in half again. Increase the frequency of the feedback. Decrease the size of the problem. Decrease the size of the problem. You increase the emotional willingness to attack it. But when we set, as American leaders often do, we set goals in dollars annually, okay? We want to give monthly feedback because that's what generally accepted accounting practices do. And I don't know if you know this, but if you dig back far enough, the what we now consider generally accepted accounting practices were first used in the Civil War to count the number of boots that we had in the Union Army. You, you can just let that settle for a minute in terms of its relevancy to today's business speak. Amen. Um, yeah. So, so by doing it, I get that, that benefit. But here's the other thing. Recognize that what we're trying to do with scorekeeping is not catch somebody doing it wrong or to punish them or to slap them. In spite of the fact that that's what our scorecards seem to indicate, right? 
So what you want is a safe working environment, and we track OSHA recordable accidents. Mm, super smart. <laughs> you got it right up to the forehead, just right up to the forehead. That's where the inspiration comes from. So by moving to the what is it that that we want more of? What is it we want better of? What do we reward? What do we recognize? How do we isolate it? How do we boil those things down? It's all around that increasing the frequency of the feedback. So our mantra, if you will, our man, that'll work, is every day, everybody needs to know whether they've won or lost. And, you know, if you're not in the pest control business and you can't get a close every day, then what you really want to do is you want to move that interval of non-success. You want to decrease the interval of non-success, increase the frequency of the success. And we have all kinds of stories in sales lore about believe in your win rate, believe in your win rate. And you, uh, the old story about the guy selling vacuum cleaners. Well, actually, vacuum cleaners used to be sold door to door. And there's an old story. I don't know. It's a Zig Ziglar story about this guy that was not a very great salesman, but believed in his win rate. And the sales manager had convinced him that he could sell one out of three. So he'd go up to the door and say, ma'am, have any interest in a vacuum cleaner today? And she'd go, no, wouldn't bother him a bit. Go to the next house, same story, wouldn't bother him a bit. He got to that third house, she didn't have a chance of a dying duck in a hailstorm because that was the one he was going to sell. Now, I'm going to submit to you, you know, there's always a little facetiousness with me because if you're not laughing about it, then if you can't laugh at what you, who you are and what you do, then you have no business doing it. Okay. The life insurance people are just selling, they're just debt dealers. They, that upsets them sometimes. But anyways, so my point is we're, oh, we're crazy running late. But so does Sean, does that give us a, a start of the start of the build? Absolutely. We capture those principles and just make that one shift from closing opportunity, not not from make that shift to closing opportunities as a way that we dialogue in our business and away from 10 accounts listed at 30% closing probability. We change the professionalism of ourselves, our coaches, our teams, our industry, our companies. I love the concept. And I think this is the framework that I was looking for in bringing the concept of the game of work to business development and our methodology. I mean, we've been talking about this for for 50 years and that that's been part of the problem. We've been, we've been talking about it. We are not tracking it religiously and we need the game of work framework to, to memorialize and galvanize this strategy that we have. Chuck, one of the things that we're, we're doing right now that I think you'll find interesting is quietly, <laughs> I mean, I, I cannot believe this is not at the top of every news story, but the U.S. Congress the, yes. over the last uh, six months have passed a $1.3 trillion 
bill that the president signed into law at the end of November. What's happening now with this fund, with this $1.3 trillion in funding is it's being pushed to all of the federal agencies like uh, the Department of Defense and D Department of Transportation and Health and Human Services. The states and municipalities are going to compete for this funding, just like if you were a Lockheed. And you've worked with a lot of government organizations over your career where they don't know how to do this. This is not their, this is not their thinking of, what do you mean? I've got to compete for this. I've got to, we've, we have in a short period of time, we have got to turn these government executives into business development warriors. And, and we, we think it's utilizing the, the game of work methodology to make that happen. Yeah, I, I agree. The other thing is that in, in doing that, and I don't, I suspect we could have an impact, but the frightening thing is I saw a graph yesterday that our spend is 4.6 trillion. That's right. You're our correct. revenue, our revenue, a word not often were used in the halls of Congress, I'm sure, but our revenue is three point something two. It's like a billion and a half, tri a trillion and a half dollars overspend. And then you get, without being political, but you get the answer now to fuel prices is to waive the gas tax. I mean, these people have no, I mean, they couldn't get through a basic class in entrepreneurship at Lausanne because someone would ask them, what is two plus three? And they would go, well, I can't answer that because I don't know if the three's as big as we need to spend. Well, and, and the reality is how we started working in the economic development and social impact arena was that was exactly what you just said. We had a governor who I admire very much, who basically said this to us. We have a $2 billion budget deficit. We don't know how we're going to bridge that. We said, Okay, well, if you were Lockheed, you would bridge that by increasing your revenue. And this is how we're going to make that happen. That is how really the, the LSI economic development practice started was that we began building revenue for states initially and then municipalities yeah. the same way we were building revenue for Lockheed Martin. and. Yeah. Similarly, what we were doing is when we when we said, here is your spend on the balance sheet. <laughs> this is this is your assets. Here's your liabilities on, on your income statement and, and balance sheet in the government. Get excited about us reducing these costs because everybody you, you'll still see this. Everybody gets excited about we brought a new company into this area and this company is going to create jobs. Well, 
you start looking at the tax or the revenue on this, these jobs, it may be $1,500 a year for revenue, for tax revenue for these jobs. But if you can take the expense of unemployment now and translate that into the cost savings on the government balance sheet, whoa, now now you're really, but I mean, you typically don't hear the government talking about Oh, we're look at look at the look at all of the cost savings that we've achieved through this, through this work, through building, uh, migrating individuals off of public assistance, pulling them off of TANF and and other these other social programs. That summarizes a lot of the LSI economic development and social impact work that that we've been doing especially over the last uh, 20 years. And that's why I, I think bringing together what you have perfected in this game theory is so, so exciting. And, and I'm really looking forward to collaborating with you, Chuck, on this. Me too. I think we finally are. I, our, I, I think our, I get our it. may not be perfect, but it's more highly probable than it has been in the past. And, you know, <laughs> I had the opportunity sometime between 2008 and 2011 to have the governor's council. It's like 15, 20 people. You'd know who those are. Yeah. And he asked me to make a presentation on productivity. And so I utilized this results to resources ratio, which we really need to delve into as we go forward. But, and I said, you know, in a supermarket, we get 20,000 people a week that shop and we employ 300 times 40 hours. So we have, we have a ratio between our servees, if you will, and our servors. And here's what the ratio is. And we did it in about six industries that we were really close to. And then we did it for government. Said, okay, now, you know, how many people do we have employed by state of Utah government? Well, it's X. How many people do we serve? That's 2 million. So, okay, so how's that ratio work? And and more importantly, over the period of time that we've had this amazing growth, if you go back to the break-even analysis, are we becoming more efficient? In other words, are we serving more people today per state employee than we did in the past? And if we're not, which is usually the case, business or public or private. If we're not, then we really need to go back to that accounting 101 class that said this is fixed, this is fixed expense, this is variable expense. And if you keep this percentage right and this flat right, you can make yourself a grundle of money. And you've called me in here to say you've grown five times and you're losing more money today than you did when you started. Okay, so let's just let's just forget the math for a minute. Let's just use a little grammar here and and parse the sentence down into, into what we need to work on. So we're saying the same thing, but but it it requires the technology. And it, but it also requires a resolve. And, and if we all know on a federal level, we need to spend less 
We need to increase revenue. We need to figure out how much of this year we don't need, create a surplus that we can pay against the deficit. And somebody needs to take a 20-year plan or a 15 or a 10 or whatever it is and put that thing together. And, and what's really ironic about, <laughs> about the gas tax suspension is that the gas tax is the only thing big enough to solve the deficit. It's the only magnitude issue that we could tax something on and get it to work. But no one will have that conversation. Right. Now, in, in some states like ours, thankfully, our leadership is willing to have some of those conversations, as you know better than I. A couple things just uh, that you might find interesting. We are setting up command centers across the U.S. in states and municipalities. And I thought this was brilliant. It came from a member of our team who said to us, said to our senior leadership team, what we need to be doing is creating a divisions in divisions of, of these government organizations that look like a sales organization. They're not going to get that. They're not going to understand that. So instead, what he did was he's been branding this command centers <laughs> where it's almost like a FEMA response team and they get that. They understand that. I thought it was brilliant. These command centers are going to be responsible for creating the conduit around capturing this business and executing the revenue. So just you, you'll hear that uh, term used quite a bit. That, that's just one thing that I, I thought you might find interesting. Also, the governor of the the state with the greatest economy today has asked LSI to come in and orchestrate his economic summit, where he brings together all of the players around economic development in to talk about what went well, what didn't go well. What are we going to do? What's the objectives? There's going to be 5,000 individuals participating in this summit. I think it's a great opportunity for us to use the overall game theory and the game of work methodology married to the LSI economic development and social impact work. I, just, I thought it was such an honor that we were asked by this governor with the best economy in the country to come in and run this, not the worst. Well, Sean, that's, that doesn't surprise me at all, because one of the things that people would say to us, and our business like yours is built on referrals, is without exception, I can't think of a time this happened, is that someone would get through our process, they'd have huge increases in productivity, they'd have, and then at the end, they would say, do you know who really needs this? And I would just, time out, I, I don't want to hear the rest of the sentence, okay? I don't want to hear public, I don't want to hear private, I don't want to hear education, I don't want, because in order for this to work, in order for an enlightened process to take place, you have to have an enlightened leader. 
That's right. And that that leader is not somebody who needs fixing, but it's somebody who wants enhancement. And so one of the keys, I used to say it as our wrap-up, I may be redundant here, but I would say to the group, understand now that you don't need to call these game of work scorecards. You need to call them our scorecards. Right. Because because you need to look at me as the guy at Callaway who builds the driver. Okay. Now that's the tool and I'm bringing you the tool. Now, Dustin Johnson, when he picks up my driver, he hits it differently than I do. (laughs) So, so we, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on whether or not the driver and whether or not the principles and whether or not things you see at every golf course every Saturday work, okay? Let's talk about adapting the behavior that fits the principles to get Dustin Johnson performance. <laughs> so, well, and I, I love Dustin Johnson, and I think he is a tailor-made guy like me. Yes, yes. But who's counting? Who's who's really actually concerned about what thing you do on some silly weekend activity that has no economic impact to LSI whatsoever? I love it. Well, this is going to be a lot of fun. Wow, that was a lot of topics that Chuck and I covered in this episode. And if you are a business development executive, if you are a executive responsible for economic development, social impact, or measuring results in any way, please let us know how we can work with your organization to increase your win rates and decrease your business development costs through our business development methodology and in partnership with the Game of Work and Chuck Coonrad's gamification theory. This is such a powerful formula, combining the LSI methodology and the game of work methodology to achieve significant results and cost savings, and especially looking at reporting and tracking metrics around business development, capture, and execution, which is all of the LSI disciplines. So if we can help you in any way as a government entity, as a for-profit or non-profit organization, please contact us. We'll list all of these links, including links to Chuck's various books in the episode notes. And we look forward to working with you. 